0: It has been said that life is better in uninteresting times. I'm not sure if that is true. It seems like it could be though. But we've not lived in uninteresting times for a very long time. Think about the upheavals we've experienced over the last 25 years. A presidential scandal followed by an impeachment and then a censure of the sitting president in 1998. And then a tumultuous presidential campaign followed by ballot issues. Do you remember hanging and pregnant chads in Florida? Ultimately, that was put to rest by the US Supreme Court in 2000. The worst terrorist attack on US soil in September of 2001, followed by US-led wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. The subprime mortgage crisis and the market crash in 2008 and 2009 followed by the Great Recession, as they call it. The unlikely presidency of Donald Trump, culminating with all the craziness of COVID-19, the chaos that has come after that. We're still in that cycle of chaos. We have political chaos and market chaos, racial chaos, global chaos, issues in Asia, problems once again in the Middle East this last week. We're most certainly in interesting times. It might be possible that life would be a little bit better in some uninteresting times. Maybe just a little bit of mundane times would be great. But it's hard to imagine uninteresting times. And prior to everything that we have been experiencing in the last 25 years, there were problems in the economy and in world politics in the 1970s. Some of you probably lived through that. That was before my time. And then there was the tumult of the 1960s, political assassinations, Cold War geopolitics, racial tensions and violence, the Vietnam War. Before that, in the 1950s, there was the Red Scare, communism rising, the Korean War. In the 1940s, of course, World War II. Is there really ever uninteresting times? It doesn't really seem that there is, because we live, as I have said many times before, in a broken and fallen world. We live in a world that is affected by sin, a world that experiences both natural and moral evils, a world that is in desperate need of restoration. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says that the whole of creation, everything is groaning, as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Currently, as we as individuals and as a society and as a church are all trying to reorient back towards some feeling of regularity and normalcy in life, we are revisiting familiar themes here at Cross Connection Church having to do with our vision as a church. I've been sharing over the last five weeks what our vision is all about here at the church. And for those of you that have been a part of Cross Connection Church for a while, this is review. But reviews are sometimes important, especially right before the test. Some of you might be in that review period right now at school. Finals are coming up. In fact, I have a couple of finals going on just this next week. And oftentimes, just before the final, the professor will give you a review sheet and say, here are some of the things that you need to know for the final. Be prepared to answer questions on this and be prepared for maybe writing an essay on that. We, I believe, are in a time of testing and trial. Some people think that this is a final time of testing. We don't really know, we'll just have to wait and see. But you need to be prepared because there are some things that you're going to be tested on as we go forward. We were created for connection. That's gonna be on the final. God made us to live life in connection with him. That's the vertical relationship that he created for us for. And he also created us to live life in connection with one another on the horizontal level. I believe we even see this in the actual makeup of who we are at an ontological level of being, the way that we are made up. You have a soul. That's the real you. That's where your intellect, emotion, and will reside. But your soul can't really do much if it's not animated by the body and then a spirit. And the real you, your soul, connects with God at the spirit level and with others in this world at the body level. So at the very level of being, we have this understanding that we were made to live in connection with God and in connection with one another. But though we were created for connection with God and one another, we lost that connection through rebellious disobedience, through sin, in the fall in Genesis chapter three. We are born separated from God and divided from one another. And though we are born separated from God and divided from one another, we deeply desire to be connected with God and one another. The biblical gospel, the good news about Jesus is the story of how God set out to bring us back into connection with him and with one another. Jesus is the mediator of this reconciliation. He's also the means by which this reconciliation is possible because Jesus in his body on the cross makes connection with God and one another possible again. Jesus through his death on the cross has defeated sin and death. I've quoted the passage many times before, but it's necessary and important to this whole story to go back to a A well-read passage in my Bible in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning there at verse 14. Ephesians 2.14, the Apostle Paul writes, For he, Jesus, himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father, we're connected to God. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. We've covered all of this in our previous five messages and we've come to the point at which I was sharing with you last week that we are called to carry this good news to the world. Our vision, as you know well, if you are a part of Cross Connection Church, is life in connection with God, with one another, and with the world through Jesus. Jesus told his early followers in Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He commissioned his followers to make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28, verse 19, what is called the Great Commission. And if you are a believer, in and a follower of Jesus, then you are called and commissioned by him to share the good news of life in connection with him and with one another, with this world. We are called to share this good news, the good story, the good news of the gospel. And a lot of times the idea of sharing the gospel, what Christians have for a very long time called evangelism, a lot of times that idea kind of frightens us, but it doesn't have to. Because sharing the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is just like when you share with someone about the really good restaurant that you ate at last week, or your favorite author, or your favorite recipe. But I know that it still kind of makes some of us a little bit anxious when we start to talk about sharing our faith and about evangelism. In fact, at the end of the service here in our sanctuary this last Sunday, I I prayed for all of those that were gathered that we would find ourselves in situations this week that we could not ignore the opportunities that God would give us to be able to share the gospel. And I'm sure that that prayer probably was fulfilled for a number of people, but that kind of stuff makes us a little bit anxious. So what I wanna do today is to give you some practical tips from Jesus about sharing the good news with others. And it's gonna be found in one of the great stories of scripture where Jesus brought light to someone who was in darkness. Early in the story of John's gospel, we read that Jesus, he had been down in Jerusalem and in the area around Jerusalem called Judea. And then he was departing to go back to Galilee. And on his way from Jerusalem, which is in the southern part of the nation of Israel, back to Galilee, where his main home base was, the scriptures say that he needed to go through Samaria. And we read this in the Gospel of John, chapter four, beginning at verse five. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour of the day or noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food." Now, before I go any further with this story, and for some of you, you've probably read John chapter 4 and the story of the woman at the well in Samaria. But before we go any further into it, there are some key things to consider, even at this initial stage in the text. First, Jesus sought out people who were in need. He went to where needy people were. We've considered so many times that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. I've shared that quite a bit, even over the last five weeks. Going back to Palm Sunday, I shared from Luke chapter 19, the story of Zacchaeus, where that verse is found in Luke 19, verse 10. So many times we go back to that passage where we read that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. And he went to where lost people would be. We are surrounded by lost people who are in need. But one of the challenges that we, because of tribalistic tendencies, which I spoke a little bit about last week, one of the challenges that we have is that we have a tendency to avoid lost people who are in need. The Jews in Jesus's day, they did the very same thing. They weren't much different than we are. Most Jews traveling from Galilee in the northern part of Israel to Jerusalem, which a faithful Jew was required to do three times a year, first at Passover, then at Pentecost, and then during the fall season of feasts as well. So a faithful Jew that was going to Jerusalem three times a year from Galilee, the, the area that we refer to as Samaria was right in between Galilee in the north and Jer- Judea or Jerusalem in the south. But a faithful Jew they wouldn't go through Samaria. They would cut over to what we know as modern day Jordan on the east side of the Jordan River, and they would bypass, they'd go around Samaria. They would avoid it. Samaritans were an ethnic minority that the Jews did not like. So they would avoid coming anywhere near to the Samaritan people. My wife and I, we, we love to visit Santa Barbara. In fact, we're planning on visiting there in just a couple of weeks, but I will do just about anything to avoid driving through los angeles maybe you can relate with that and the jews basically did the same thing they went out of their way to avoid samaria but not jesus jesus left judea where jerusalem was and he departs to go back up to the north to galilee but the scriptures say in john chapter 4 that he needed to go through samaria jesus went to where lost and needy people were to seek and to save that which is lost because That was his purpose in coming to the world, to seek and to save that which is lost. So we have just a very simple application. If you want to fulfill Jesus's commission, he says in Mark 16, 15, go and preach the gospel to every creature. He says in Matthew 28, 19, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. If you want to be faithful to the commission of Jesus, stop avoiding lost people. So that's the first thing to consider from this text. Second thing, Jesus interacted with lost people, even when he was tired and hungry. The first few verses in John four tell us that Jesus was tired and he was thirsty and his disciples had gone into the town, the city of Sychar to go and find food. So he was probably hungry in addition to being thirsty and tired. And Jesus interacted with lost people, even when he was tired and hungry or Maybe a better way to say it it, is that Jesus didn't look for excuses to not talk with people about the gospel or to not look for lost people. And the fact is, is that a lot of times we are those who are pretty excuse prone. We have all kinds of excuses for why I didn't take that opportunity to talk with that person or I didn't step out of my comfort zone to share with that person. I'm busy. I'm tired. I have somewhere that I need to go right now. I don't know what to say. They might ask a question that I don't know the answer to. Or one of the things people say is, I'm not an evangelist. God hasn't gifted me in that way. But we need to stop avoiding lost people and stop making dumb excuses for not engaging with lost people. Jesus would interact with those people who were in need. He would look for those people who were in need. And he did so even when he was tired and when he was hungry and he was thirsty. He didn't make up excuses. The third thing that we find in those initial words from John chapter 4 is that Jesus was willing to step out of his comfort zone to interact with people that might be outsiders. He is in this region of Samaria, a place that most Jews would not go. And he interacts with a person that most people would not interact with. The person that Jesus interacts with in the story had several strikes against her. One, she was a woman, which at this period of time and in this place in Middle Eastern culture, even still today, the idea of interacting with someone who is a woman who's not your wife or not a part of your direct family was kind of out of bounds. So that's the first strike against this woman. The second strike against her is that no Jewish man in the first century, especially a rabbi, would have any dealing with a woman that was a Samaritan woman. And the Jews, they they hated Samaritans. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And then the third thing that we are going to see as we go through this text is that this woman who was a Samaritan woman was also probably a moral outcast. In fact, the fact that she comes to the well at the middle of the day and not in the cool part of the morning or in the cool part of the evening indicates that she's probably trying to stay away from just the normal gathering of the people who would be at the well, the normal women at that point in time. So she's very likely a bit of a moral outcast. So she's a Samaritan, she's a woman, she is a moral outcast. But if you're gonna fulfill the commission that Jesus has given to us to go and to preach the gospel to every creature and to make disciples of all nations, you need to be willing to step outside of your comfort zone. I'm not going to lie to you, that isn't always easy. It's not always easy to interact with lost people, but I can promise you this. If you stop avoiding lost people and are willing to step out of your comfort zone, God will enable and empower you by his Holy Spirit to find and share, lo- share with lost people. How can I make such an audacious promise to you? Well, because that's exactly what God says he will do. God does not command what he does not also enable. He commands us to preach the gospel. Go and preach the gospel to every creature. Make disciples of all nations. And he will enable us to do what he's commanded us to do. Those were the very last words that Jesus shared with his followers before he ascended into heaven in acts chapter 1 verse 8 jesus says but you shall receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in jerusalem in all judea and in samaria and to the end of the earth so jesus is at this well in samaria in the middle of a hot day he is tired he is hungry and a samaritan woman shows up to get water there a samaritan woman who is probably a moral outcast and he says to her can you give me a drink quick side note before we go on in the text evangelism is really at its base about persuasion we are going to people who don't believe as we believe that don't see as we see who don't have the same vision or understanding as we do and we're trying to encourage them through the message that we bring to be persuaded to believe as we believe so evangelism is about persuasion and according to persuasion experts The first rule of persuasion is reciprocity. Now, I'm not going to go in depth on what reciprocity is, but it's kind of one of the ideas of, you know, if, if you would do a favor for me, then I feel inclined to do a favor for you. And I believe that Jesus here in this passage is employing this rule of persuasion simply by asking for a drink. He's also starting a conversation with this woman and she responds, we read in John chapter four, beginning in verse nine. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, most of us might be completely shut down by that interaction with this woman this is the first century equivalent to you shouldn't be talking to me don't you know that you have crossed kind of a cultural line you've crossed a barrier there was a lot of long-standing ethnic cultural and political issues that divided jews from samaritans going back literally hundreds of years 800 years about the jews hated samaritans and the samaritans didn't care much for jews either But note that Jesus was not distracted by political drama. Let me say that again, because this is really important, especially at this moment that we find ourselves in here in the United States and in the West in general. Jesus was not distracted by political drama. And as this woman throws this thing out there, kind of inciting the political drama, he doesn't take the bait. So don't be trolled into worthless divisive and unnecessary conversations. A lot of the conversations that we find ourselves getting involved in can instantly kind of be spiraled down into divisive conversations, but don't get bogged down in things that have no real eternal value. Arguments over politics, arguments over strange theological discussions, arguments over preferences, those sort of things are rarely worthwhile. So don't be distracted or drawn into debate about worthless things. This can be a hard one for us, but it's really, really important. If you're going to fulfill that command to go and preach the gospel to every creature and to fulfill the command, the commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, then we have to do our best to not be distracted or drawn into debate about worthless things. And there's a lot of worthless things that we can find ourselves distracted or, or drawn into. Jesus wasn't distracted by political drama. And we should do our best as enabled by the Spirit of God to not be drawn into that either. Instead, Jesus in this passage and in a lot of the interactions that we are able to see him in, especially in the Gospel of John, because the Gospel of John has these kind of private conversations with Jesus and the woman at the well, or Jesus and Nicodemus, a very religious man in in John chapter three, or Jesus and the the lame man in John chapter five, or Jesus and the man born blind in John chapter nine. We have a lot of these interactions. Jesus zeroes in directly on the issue. He focuses upon what is really important. And he reveals to the woman in this story at the well, that she is ignorant of two things that he brings out. Look at John chapter 4 verse 10 Jesus answered and said to her if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you give me a drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water the woman was ignorant of two critical things the gift of God and the giver of the gift here in this passage and Jesus says to her if you knew these two things then you would realize that I have what you actually really want And if you knew who I was, then you would ask me for this thing that you actually really want, and I would freely give it to you. So he says to her, if you knew the gift of God, the Samaritans were a very religious and spiritual people. In fact, like a lot of the people that you'll interact with, and I've been saying this over the last several weeks, that a lot of times we interact with people who are formerly religious, and now they say they're spiritual, but not religious. The Samaritans were a very religious and spiritual people, but they were aimlessly worshiping in the wrong way. And they were ultimately missing the point, which is like a lot of the people that you'll interact with, whether it's in the office building that you work at or on the construction site that you're in, the classroom that you're in, we will interact with people who are spiritual and religious or spiritual, but not religious. And they are aimlessly focused on a whole bunch of things that ultimately are not going to bring them closer to where they want to get. So if you knew, Jesus says, who it is that is speaking to you. If you knew the gift of God and you knew who it is that's speaking to you, then you would ask to him. Jesus suggests to this woman that he just might be more important than she realizes. And this is true with most of the people that we will interact with as well. They have ideas and opinions about who Jesus is, but they probably don't realize who he actually is. So he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that you're speaking to, you would have asked him. Though Jesus was asking her for a drink, he hints that he might have what she really needs more than she really has what he needs. And this is actually another rule of persuasion. Remember I said a moment ago that the first rule of persuasion has to do with reciprocity. The second rule of persuasion has to do with scarcity. And Jesus is giving some scarcity into this situation right now. He's saying, I have something that you need. I have something that you want. When I tell people that they were created for something more than they are now experiencing, they were created for life in connection with God and one another, but they're not experiencing that. Or when Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. These are issues of scarcity. We are introducing into the conversation that you're missing out on what it is that you really need or what it is that you really desire and it causes people to start to think like well am i missing out what am i missing out on what am i searching for what is it that i really want these are all really good questions so jesus throws some scarcity into the conversation you were made for connection and you're not experiencing it that's introducing some scarcity to it the final thing that jesus hints at here is that this gift is what this woman really needs if you knew who i was you would ask me and I would give you living water. He tells her explicitly what it is that she wants that he has. And the woman responds in verse 11, John chapter four, verse 11. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock?" So Jesus here in this conversation, he's just sown some seeds into the conversation to trigger some deeper talk with this woman. He's sown seeds of what I would call seeds of inquiry to try and get her to ask more questions, to try and figure out the answer to these two questions. Who is Jesus and what is the gift of God? And so she takes the bait and she says to him, well, you've told me about this living water, but you've just asked me for a drink. You have nothing to draw with and this well is deep. So where are you going to get this living water? She assumes Jesus's limitations because she assumes that she knows exactly what he is saying. Where then do you get this living water? She says, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? Again, Jesus told her that she was ignorant of the gift of God which she assumes is purely material and that she was ignorant of his true identity. And she's trying to sort all of that out. He's having this evangelistic conversation with her. What is the gift? Where does it come from? Where do you get it? These are the things that are going around in her head. And then she asks him, are you greater than the patriarch Jacob, our father Jacob? Both the Jews and the Samaritans looked back to some common ancestors, names like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were common to both Jews and Samaritans. So she says, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well centuries, millennia before? So Jesus's aim in this conversation is to reveal the woman's need, her problem, and then to reveal the solution to the problem. And he's doing this by talking to her about the gift and the giver. And so he continues, John chapter 4, verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water and this well will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up unto everlasting life. The gift that Jesus is speaking about is not material. It's not some simply physical sort of thing, uh, water or bread. It, It wasn't water drawn from an earthly well. If you seek after things of this world earthly water earthly food then you will ultimately not be satisfied but if you drink of christ and what it is that he gives you will be fully satisfied and not only will you be fully satisfied in in this life but you'll be fully satisfied on into everlasting life and not only that you'll be fully satisfied in such a way that you become a source of life-giving satisfaction for others because you can share this living water with others So as the woman inquires of Jesus, he clearly communicates to her what the gift of God is. He's not trying to hide anything. So he tells her that she's ignorant of the gift of God and the giver of the gift. And he wants her to come to the understanding of what is the gift of God and who is he really. So he's leading her into this. And as he's communicating, he's explicitly telling her what the gift of God is. And the woman responds in verse 15 in this way, John four, verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor have to come out to this well to draw water again. So what Jesus offers sounds very good to this woman. He had previously said, if you knew the gift of God, you would have asked for it. And if you ask for it, I would give it to you. So at this point, she's begun to understand at least just a little bit what the gift is. And so she asks for it. But Jesus doesn't immediately give it to her because he said, if you knew the gift of God, and also the one who is speaking to you, then you would ask and he would give you. You've got to know the gift, but you've also got to know the giver before you can receive the gift that he gives. So Jesus has revealed something about this gift, not fully, she doesn't understand what living water is entirely that brings you unto everlasting life, but she knows that she wants what Jesus is talking about. So now Jesus needs to reveal not just the gift, but to reveal who he really is. And remember, she's now asked him a question. Are you greater than Jacob? So how does Jesus reveal his true identity? I love this. Look at verse 16 of John chapter four. Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. This is kind of a strange response. She is starting to realize that I want this gift that you're talking about. And she's now starting to look into who is this guy that I'm talking to. She says, are you greater than our father, Jacob? And he says, in an answer to that, go and um, get your husband and then come here. And then the woman answered in verse 17, I have no husband. She's kind of seemed playful up to this point and pretty talkative. But now all of a sudden she gets kind of quiet quickly he says, go and get your husband and then come back out here. And she says, I have no husband. And then Jesus said to her in verse 17 again, you have well said, I have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one that you are now with is not your husband. So in that you've spoken truly. So that's a little awkward. And, and in seeing this conversation, this interplay between Jesus and this woman at the well, it is a little bit awkward, but we need to recognize this really important point here. Don't be afraid to offend. Because the message that we have in some respects is offensive. Before a person can experience the saving grace and forgiveness of Christ, they have to acknowledge their lostness and their sin. Jesus' response to this woman here at this point reveals that he is something more than just a Jewish man at a well on a hot day as he says to her, well, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands and the man that you're with right now is not your husband. She starts to realize that there's something different about this guy that she's talking to. So she says to him in John 4, 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Jesus told her that she was ignorant of the gift of God and he's now begun to reveal to her what that gift is, living water that that carries you on into everlasting life. And he's also told her that she was, ignorant of the giver of the gift his true identity and that's exactly what he is now beginning to do here is to reveal to her who he truly is and when he says to her you're right you don't have a husband you've had five husbands and the guy that you're with right now is not your husband she says i think you might be something more than i thought you were i think you might be a prophet and so now she gives him kind of like a prophet's test or her own personal test to try and figure out who jesus is she says this in john 4 verse 20. our fathers worshiped on this mountain the Samaritans worshiped in that area called Samaria near a mountaintop called Gerizim. And the children of Israel, they worshiped in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah or Mount Zion there on the Temple Mount at the temple. And so she says, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. You Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And so she turns to Jesus and she's basically saying, Sort this out for us. Who is right? And Jesus goes on in verse 21 Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. That's important right there. I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then note this, verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, the interesting thing is, is that when you look at this text in the original language, this was originally written in the Greek language. This in verse 26, it literally reads, I am is speaking to you. And if you've been around the Bible for a while and you've read beginning at the book of Genesis and you got through Exodus, you know that in Exodus chapter three, we have this very important point where Moses asks God who is speaking to him through a burning bush, who am I I going to tell my countrymen, the Jewish people in Egypt sent me when I go down there and say, you know, the God of our fathers has sent me. And, And God says, I am who I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. And Jesus here is mirroring those exact same words. He says, I am is speaking to you. And that's in response to the question of this woman when she says to him, we know that the Christ, when he comes, he's going to reveal all things. And Jesus says, I am is speaking to you. I am the Christ is exactly what he's saying in this passage. So he has now revealed to her the gift and he has now revealed to her the giver. The gift is living water, which satisfies eternally. And now the giver of the gift, his true nature, who he really is, I am is speaking with you. And notice the woman's response in John chapter 4, beginning at verse 28. The woman left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men of the city, come see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Could this be the Christ? And then they went out of the city and came to him. The woman left her water pot, I guess that is an indication that she found what she had been looking for. And then she became an evangelist immediately. After she discovers the gift of God and she discovers the giver of the gift, she apparently receives this living water from Jesus. She leaves her water pot and she goes into the city and she becomes an instant evangelist. She says to the people, come and see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Don't Be shy about sharing with others what you have found in Jesus. This is really important. If you have discovered through the gospel this good news about the gift of life, life more abundantly, everlasting life, living water, the bread of life, go through whatever metaphor you want to go through, the path of life, the gate, the door, all these different metaphors in scripture. If you've discovered in Jesus that he is the one that brings connection with God and connection with one another, life everlasting, life abundantly, and you've tasted of that, don't be shy about sharing that with others. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're commissioned to do. And that's what we as a church are all about. Life in connection with God, one another, and then bringing other people into connection with God and one another as well through the gospel. Jesus has reconciled us to God. He's made it possible for us to be at peace with God for eternity. He has given us new life forever and ever. And once we have tasted of that, we cannot be shy about sharing that good life and that good news with other people. My hope is to encourage you to do exactly this. You know, it's, it's interesting this last week I was listening to an individual who is a psychiatrist and he's a doctor, he, tra- he was a professor at Oxford University, and he was talking about how science has discovered that there are three very important things. This, this blew my mind as I was listening to this, and it's just coincidence that I was listening to this. But he was saying that science and psychology and the social sciences have discovered that there are three very important things that humans need. They need a connection to one another. They need to connect with this world, they literally need to get out in nature and connect with the world. And they need to be connected to a body of like-minded people who are also worshiping and have the same value. And, and this guy, he's not a believer. And yet he was saying, we need to be connected to one another. We need to be connected to God. And we need to be connected with the world. This is what we find when we come to the pages of scripture. This is what we find in the gospel. And this is what we as a church are really wanting to be able to share with other people. The people that we interact with on a regular basis, our neighbors, our family members, our coworkers, our friends, to be able to share with them that the way that we are going to experience life and that more abundantly, what we truly desire is to be brought into connection with God, to be brought into connection with one another, and to be connected with all that God has made in this world. That is where we truly experience what God made us for, where we fulfill the purpose for which we were made. And so, listen, if you are a believer, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, then don't be shy about sharing this good news with others of what you've found in Jesus. Father God, I pray that you would cause these things to be in our hearts, and not just in our hearts and in our minds, but Lord, they would be on our lips and we would share them with other people. I pray for anyone who's watching this right now that you would give us those opportunities this week that we have a hard time getting out of, that we cannot deny. And that when we have those opportunities, we would share the good news of who you are and what you've done in our lives with them so that they might know this life and life more abundantly that we have with you and in you, that they might experience connection with you and with one another and with all that you have made. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.